And praise God. Well, this morning, we're going to be ministering on the resurrection. Is anybody surprised? I've entitled today's message, He Rose Again. And today I want to talk about the importance of His death, because His death was very important. His death is what proclaimed our forgiveness of sins. It was what paid the penalty for our sins. But the most important thing is the significance of the resurrection in the life of a believer. See, the the thing is, is, is His death was necessary for forgiveness, because the wages of sin is death. And we have to be forgiven to be right with God, to be just with God, to be made righteous. We need those sins paid for, taken care of. And it's either our death that pays for them, or as in this case, Jesus Christ came down and paid the very penalty for us. But that's only half of the problem. That's only only half of the problem fixed. It's only half of the solution because His life, His resurrection, living again was necessary for us to finally live ourselves. Instead of just having the problem patched, which is what the law did when they gave sacrifices, it patched the problem temporarily, but we were still sinners. We were still dead in our transgressions. But His life is what changed that for us. It gave us a brand new life inside of us. And it's what made us be finally whole. Otherwise, we would still be where we were. We'd still be in bondage to sin. In Romans 17, 14-15, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. And Paul is speaking of here when they were under the law, but not the law of grace. They hadn't received Jesus Christ yet. And he said, you know what? I agree. In my spirit, I agree with what the law says. I agree these are the right things to do. I want to do well. But he says, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. And see, that's the problem. If we just had forgiveness of sins, it doesn't change who we are. The fundamental brokenness as we have, have as a people that started with Adam. Jesus did what the law could not. The law gave us guidelines or a plumb line for how we're to live. But his life was what finally allowed us to meet that standard. The other problem that you have is in, if you read in Matthew 12, 43-45, it says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. See, that's the problem when you just have forgiveness of sins, when you're just dealing with the sin side of it is, is when you get all out of your life, when you try to live the, the right way, when, the, when the, the, the Bible says here, the Spirit comes back, it finds it swept and put in order, and, and it brings in more with it, and it's just worse for you. And, and I think if any of you remember when you were trying to do the right thing before you received Jesus, you can maybe pull it off for a few days, but things just got worse again later. You tried so hard. At least I know that's how it was in my life. I was trying so hard to fix myself. And I was failing miserably. And then I felt guilty and shameful. And I felt just terrible about what was going on. But that's where Jesus comes in. The best way to describe it is like a mason jar. When, if you ever know anything about the cannery process, they take those, those, those jars that they've used. And if you'll notice, they use them over and over and over again. But the first thing that they do is they, they clean the inside of the jar. They clean it and they sterilize it. And they make it so that there's no bacteria. There's nothing in it. It's perfectly clean. But how many know it would just be silly if you just all you had was empty jars? So the next thing they do is they fill it. 
They fill it with something else. And that's what happens in our lives with Jesus. We, he died for us and made us perfectly clean. He, he sterilized and cleaned the mason jar. But then he filled us with his spirit, made us brand new. Amen? Let's look at our first scripture today. Or I guess really the third, but the first one I wrote down. <laughs> Matthew 20, 17 through 19. It says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. You see, Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus came to earth for this very purpose. He wasn't uh, confused about why he was here. He wasn't living his life to the best of his ability, but he had a purpose. His purpose was to come and to make us whole. And as a matter of fact, this is, uh, I think, the fourth time, the third or fourth time that he mentions his resurrection. He knew it was coming. He prophesied about it. He announced his death and resurrection in Matthew 12.40, in Matthew 16.21, in Matthew 17.22, and then here once again in 2017-19, he announces his death. He knew he was coming for this very purpose he was sent. And you've got to imagine for the disciples, this was a tough thing to hear. Could you imagine your, your leader and your, your friend and your mentor telling you that I'm going to die soon? I mean, we know we, that, that tore them up inside. Matter of fact, we know that, that Peter was actually rebuked because he didn't want that to happen. In Matthew 16, 22 through 23, it says, Peter took him aside and, and began to rebuke him, saying, and this is Peter rebuking Jesus. Can you imagine that? He says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You know, Jesus came for this very purpose. And I thank God that, that Jesus had his eyes on the right place. Because how many know that Jesus was a man? We find out later in the garden that, that uh, this was difficult for him. He was so distraught that he was sweating, sweating blood. And he says here to Peter that you're a stumbling block for me. I mean, it would have been so easy for Jesus to say, yeah, you know what? You're right, Peter. Let's go hide. And he was a man. He, he, Jesus was a man just like us. He was able to make the same decisions just like us. Jesus could have ran away. But he was sent for this very purpose. And even I think for today, it's, it's hard for us to imagine what Jesus went through on the, on the road to the cross. We look at it and I think most of us probably just gloss it over. We know that he died for us. But we don't really think about what all that entailed. Anybody here seen The Passion of the Christ? Anybody watch that? I watched it once. I won't watch it again. Not that I disagree with the message, but that was hard to see. What Jesus went through for us, what he, he you know, the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he overcame the cross. He despised the shame, and you and I are the joy that was set before him, but he went through that for us. His body was bruised and broken and, and bloodied so that we could have wholeness, so that we could have health. And he eventually died so that our sins would be paid for. In John 12, 27-32 it says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. See, Jesus was a man. He was distraught by this. I mean, how many of you would volunteer for this? I can't say that I would. 
And then God gave up his son. How many of you would give up your child for the lives of others? Especially when you know every detail about them. It's easy to, to give your life for someone that you don't really know, but when you know everything that they did, you know every dark secret, maybe you wouldn't want to die for them. I can tell you right now, if I was God, we'd all be going to hell because I don't think I could give up my son. But the love that he had for us was amazing, and he gave up his only son. And Jesus went ahead with it, and he said, For this purpose I came. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, and I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. You know, we also read in Luke 22, 41-42, it says, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The amount of love that Jesus showed to go through what he went through for us boggles my mind. And, and I want you to today to, to really think about what he went through and what he did, not so that you can feel bad for what happened, but so you can grasp the love that he expressed toward you. Because I, especially in today's society, we're, I think American Christians are so jaded to what happened. It's just something we've been told our whole lives if we've grown up culturally Christian. We don't really recognize what he expressed towards us in his son. In August 16, 1987, Northworth Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 people. One survived, a four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. News accounts say when rescuers found Cecilia, they did not believe she had been on the plane. Investigators first assumed Cecilia had been a passenger on one of the cars on the highway into which the airliner crashed. But when the passenger registered for the flight was checked, there was Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and body around Cecilia, and they would not let her go. Nothing could separate that child from her parents' love. Neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor depth, neither life or death. Such is the love that Christ has for us. We hear stories like that of someone that, that offered everything for the child, but, but God did that for the entire world, knowing every single thing about us. Each and every one of your dark secrets, He paid for those, knowing that about you. He didn't do that, and He did that in spite of those things, because His love for us was so great. And that blows my mind, because I know some of the things that I've done but he still gave his life for me so that I could go before him without guilt, without shame of those things because that part of my life has been blotted out. That old man is dead and gone, and I'm a brand new creation in Christ. And then we hear that, that God's voice was heard. said they heard it and, and were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him, but Jesus said that voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. See, the reason God's voice was heard, it was for those listening so they could recognize that Jesus was from God. This was to, to it was one of those stamps of approval that God put on Jesus' life. 
One time the heavens opened and he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Everything that happened in Jesus' life was God's plan. And this was just another one of those things, the God's stamp of approval. I sent my son. He is for me. This was, this was my plan. We'll find that even the resurrection itself stands as a stamp of approval from God. And then we, begin to, we read that it says that judgment comes upon this world and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now this particular phrase right here, we, we often use it talking about if we would lift up Jesus' name, then men would be drawn to him. And I, I believe that's what the scripture uh, is also referring to. But we find that in the scripture it says this is referring to his death. He's talking about if I be lifted up on a cross, I will draw all men towards me. And anybody who looks on the name of Jesus will be saved. Just like when Moses lifted up the, the, the staff with the snake on it, all those who were bitten by the snakes and the, when they were wandering in the wilderness, if they looked on the, on the staff, they were saved. And the same is for us. If we will look upon Jesus, we will be saved. But he had to die. He had to be lifted up to draw men towards him. And like I said, he's specifically referring to his death, but I also think it applies to us when we talk about Jesus to others, when we lift up what he's done for him, when we explain to people and let them know that he loved you so much that he died for you, to pay for your sins, that you could be made whole, that you could live on eternity with him. So that they can see his love in us. When we show people love, we're lifting up the name of Jesus as they see his love manifested in us towards him. In Matthew 27, 48 through 51, it says, immediately on one of them, immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. You know what's funny is nothing changes. They were mocking Jesus. They were saying, well, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. They were mocking him. They were questioning who he was. Who is this guy who says he was the king of the Jews? Who is this guy that claimed to be the son of God? Who is this guy that claimed to be God himself? Because that's what Jesus did. And they were mocking him. But people do that very same thing today. People mock Jesus. They mock what he'd done. And like him, there he says, let them see if Elijah will come and save him. Looking for a sign. People are always looking for a sign. But the truth is, they're not looking for signs. They're just showing their doubt. If you've ever been out and spoken to people and you get the, the cocky ones, they're like, well, if God's real, have him lift this rock right here. Have him make this rock float. Anybody had anything like that? Or what about this one? If God can do anything, can he, lift a, can he make a stone that's too heavy for him to lift? You know, people are mocking from the very beginning. They mock what he's done for them. It's funny when people are always asking for these signs. What would you do if, if God made that rock float? You wouldn't believe in God. You would spend the next four days trying to figure out how I made the rock float to make you believe in God. And it saddens me when I look around and I see people that they're lost, they're broken, they're hurting, and they need hope. And they're offered hope and they reject it. But it's the only thing that can make a difference in their life. 
And then we find next that it says that Jesus yielded. He cried out with a loud voice and He yielded up His Spirit. You know, we, we look and we say that the, the Romans or the Jews killed Jesus. And like that video we watched today and it said that uh, it wasn't the Romans that killed Jesus, the Jews, but it was our sin is the reason why He had to die. And that's true as well. The Jews and Romans physically killed Him and He died for our sin. But I want you to know that it was Jesus' choice. He yielded His Spirit. In John 10, 17-18, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Then in Matthew 26, 52-54, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Peter, put your, or put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. This is in the garden when Judas came to, to uh, tell him that, uh, or Judas came for him to be captured. Peter pulled out a sword and, and uh, cut off the ear of one of the, uh, of one of the helpers for the, uh, man, I'm losing my words right now. It came, it, <laughs> praise God. He cut off the ear of one of the, the, the priest's servants. That's what I'm trying to get at. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he says, do you not think that I can appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which says that it must happen this way? You know, the truth is that that Jesus could at any time turned away and said, you know what, I'm not doing this. But it's His love that held Him. It's His love that caused Him to want to, to give it up for us so that we could live. Next we find out that the veal is being, <clears throat> pardon me, we find that the veal of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And this is incredible because this is so significant in the lives of Christians because the veal being torn and if you remember, the veal, the uh, Jew, uh, Jewish tradition says that veal was as thick as a man's hand. Can you imagine a piece of cloth as thick as this, four or five inches across? And it was ripped in two when Jesus finally gave up his spirit. It's an incredible act that happened that no man could have done on his own, but God tore the veal when, when Jesus gave up his life because it signified that there was no longer something between God and us. We could finally meet face to face with God. We could finally pray to Him ourselves. We could talk to Him ourselves. We could meet face to face with Him. We could go in front of Him and know that our inequities, our shortcomings, have been resolved in Jesus. And in John 19.30 says, Therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. He said, It is finished. And we know that Jesus went to go sit at the right hand of the Father. The job is done. I want you to know that when Jesus died, the job was done. There's nothing that we can add to it. There's nothing more that we can do to improve on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our lives. In Hebrews 10.26, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And I like preaching on this verse because I think it's so misunderstood. What he's saying is that there's no remaining sacrifice because Jesus did it. Jesus was the only one. And we'll look at the scripture in the next uh, slide as well. But when Jesus said the job was done, the job was done. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins because his was good enough. His paid the price permanently and fully. 
Next, I want to look at the prices paid. 1 John 2, 1 through 2, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that so you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, it says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But he, having offer, offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You know, I just threw a lot of scriptures at you all at once because I want you to see, and this isn't even the half of it, it's even a part of it, but you'll find all through the scriptures that Jesus paid the price. He is our advocate with the Father. He says, Father, I have paid the price for them. that They are good. He's our advocate to the Father. We find out here that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We find out here that for one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You've been made perfect in Jesus. The job is done. All sins have been paid for. And the Bible says here that it was for the entire world, not for ours only, but for those of the entire world. You know, nobody would pay twice for something. If you went to a restaurant and you sat down, you know, nowadays you have the rest, the, the servers will sometimes take your money or other, otherwise you go up to the counter and pay. Could you imagine if you went down and you had a great meal and you, you, pay, your, you pay your server and you're good to go, but on the way out, the, the cashier says, hey, you need to pay for your bill. How many of you would be like, oh, okay, I'll go ahead and pay for it again? I don't think any of us would. And that's what happens when we try to pay for this stuff ourselves. The bill has been paid. The price has been paid. For all of us. We don't need to do anything ourselves to pay for it again. The truth is that God is a just God. He demands justice. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. However, God is like the judge who, who is sitting up and his friend comes before him with a speeding ticket. And he was going 40 miles over the speed limit. And everybody knows, oh man, these two guys, they grew up together. This judge is just going to be lenient on them and let them get away with it. But when he stands before the judge, the righteous judge, he, he gives the, the due penalty of the law. He gives him the full fine and everybody's shocked. But then he does something weird. He gets, off the, he gets out from behind the, uh, his stand there and he takes his robe off and he pulls out his wallet and he begins to pay the fine for his friend. The very same thing happens for us is, is God went before. He's standing in His judgment throne. And He says, the wages of sin is death. It's true. And I'm a just God. I'm not going to let you... I can't let you get away with it. I can't just let it go free. But then He gets down off the throne and He pulls out His wallet and He pays with His Son. His Son pays the very death that we should have paid. And the truth is, in this life, nobody is going to hell for their sins. Because right here it says that He is a propitiation for our sins. The reason people are going to hell is because they haven't received the free gift of God. Remember I said we'd look at Hebrews 10.26 again. It says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It's such a misunderstood verse. Because most people who read this go, that means that if I sin after I've received Jesus, 
after I've received the knowledge of the truth, after I receive just if I sin, there's nothing that I can do. If I ever make a mistake, there's nothing for me. But the truth is, Jesus paid the price for all of your sins. Even after you've accepted Him, if you sin, we have an advocate in the Father. And He's paid the price. Because let me ask you this. When Jesus died, when Jesus paid the price for your sin, 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were in the future? They said, what about my future sins? I want you to know, 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and paid the price, all of your sins were in the future. You hadn't been born yet. Jesus has paid for every single one of your sins. And to be clear, don't get me wrong, this is not a license to sin. The Bible says that we are to be holy because He is holy. We're, we're to, to live, we're not just forgiven of our sins, but we're free from sin. The new life, the resurrection gives us a new life inside of us and gives us the ability to live the godly life that we're supposed to. The fact of the matter is, is Jesus Christ was the one-time sacrifice for all. For by one offering is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. If you have received Jesus into your heart, then you are sanctified. And by this one offering, He has made you perfect. Amen? So we'll go on as we look at the, the morning when Jesus was resurrected. In Luke 24, 1-7, it says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices from which they prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their face to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? You know, when we look at this same story in Matthew, in Matthew 28 it says that there was, a, there was an earthquake that happened, and the angels rolled the stone out of the way from the tomb. And it wasn't to let Jesus out, but it was to let witnesses in, so that people could look in and see that he had risen from the dead. And the truth is that exactly what he said, he, he said would happen, happened. You remember, we looked at one of the first scriptures. He said that I would be handed over to the Gentiles and I'd be crucified. But on the third day, I would rise again. And we find that exactly what he said happened. And then we see the angels give a rebuke. The ladies show up there and the first thing that they think is somebody stole Jesus. Because they didn't remember what he said. He says, they said, don't you remember what he said? And we're reading the story and we're like, yeah, don't you remember what he said? But you know, there's often times that we forget what he said too. We do the very same things in our lives. You know, when we get a little bit sick and we, we begin to, to ask, why is this happening to me? Why, why is something, you know, when people get really sick, why is this happening to me? And he says, don't you remember what I said? Don't you remember that I died so that you could be whole? This has no right to be in your body. What about when you're struggling financially for something and you're having some, some problems there and we forget that he said, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your welfare and not your calamity, for a hope in the future. We forget that he has these blessings planned out for us. Or have you ever been afraid and you're, you're talking to God? You're terrified about something and we forget that he said that I've not given you a spirit of fear but of power and love and of sound mind. Or when we succumb to temptation, because we forget that we're new creations in Christ. We all forget what He says to us. 
And then in this very, this very tomb here, people say, some people say that, oh, he was stolen by the disciples. And if you look into it, that's really an impossibility. There was a Roman guard with the, the, the emperor's seal in front of it. Those to, to fall asleep at your post is what they said did. The, the Romans fell asleep and the disciples moved the stone out of the way. Somehow this huge massive stone that was sealed by the Roman seal somehow moved it out of the way without waking them up and stole Jesus away. But the truth is that, that uh, to fall asleep on duty was one of the many uh, deeds punishable by death to Roman soldiers. So that wouldn't have happened. But then say, oh, well, he wasn't actually dead. He just swooned. He, just, he, just, he was really, really hurt, so he passed out on the cross. And, and apparently the, the Romans who were experts at killing people somehow missed that he was still alive. And then he was wrapped up in a cloth and buried in over a hundred pounds of spices. And wrapped up, but somehow he was still alive. He woke up, unwrapped himself, moved the stone out of the way himself, and got out of there. It's funny all the stories that are, that are used to try to explain this away. And the truth is, all they had to do to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, which I said is so important to our faith, was produce the body. But the fact is that it happened just like he said it would. On the third day, he rose again. And the angel says, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Because he was alive. And then finally, even his resurrection was a stamp of approval by God. Because the fact that God rose him from the dead was saying that this is who he said he was. This is my son, and this is my plan and purpose for his life, and ultimately for ours, that we would have newness of life. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, it says, For I delivered, you to, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is Paul speaking. You see, this, the death, burial, and resurrection was always planned by God. and It's all throughout Scripture. Prophecy referred to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to make us whole. It was God's plan from the beginning, not only to forgive man, but to make us brand new, to fix what was broken. And he died for our sins. They're paid for, and there's nothing more that we can add to it. And then once again, we find even more proof for the resurrection because Jesus was seen. He was seen by, by this account, over 500 people saw Jesus after he, he returned from the dead, after he rose again and was living again. And when he's talking, he says that most of whom remain until now, most of these people, how many know that if, if you're wanting to pull, pull the wool over somebody's eyes and you're starting to use people as witnesses, you don't go, oh yeah, they saw it, because they'd be like, um, Paul, you're a little crazy, we didn't see the dead dude. But the truth is that he rose again from the dead, demonstrating his power over death, his power over the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, it says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, now how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. 
Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The resurrection is the pinnacle of the Christian faith. It is the most important thing about the Christian faith because it is proof that he was victorious over sin, he was victorious over the grave to give us brand new life. Because of his resurrection, we have been raised with him in newness of life. And his resurrection was proof that he was who he said he was. We also find that, that we will be raised again. Our, our earthly bodies will be raised again when he returns. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one through 52 it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. If there was no resurrection, then that's not true either, as Paul so elegantly said by saying raised 415 times in three verses. He says that we're going to be raised from the dead, but if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then none of this is possible, and our faith is in vain. Our faith is worthless. Paul's making the argument that if the resurrection doesn't happen, then our faith is worth nothing, but in fact we should be pitied because we have put our hope in Christ only for this life, and it means nothing in the end. We are the most to be pitied. There's a uh, unique funeral custom conducted by African Muslims. And when someone dies, they get together and they gather around the body. They're close friends, family. They circle the casket, the casket and uh, <laughs> they just quietly gaze at the corpse. There's no crying. There's no singing. There's no flowers. There's nothing. And it says that they, they each pass around a, a peppermint candy. And all at once, they take the canyon in their mouth and they suck on it. And once the, the candy is gone, each person is reminded the life of this person is over. They believe that the, the person's life just simply dissolves, much like the candy in their mouth is what they're representing. There's no hope. There's no eternal life. But in Christ, we have hope. In Christ... We are not men to be pitied, but we are men to be envied because we have eternal life. But the truth is, we shouldn't even be envied because it's available to all. It's not something we can have that somebody else can't, but it's available to all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26, it says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all, all will be made alive. But each in his own order. For Christ, the first fruits, after that those who are in Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. You know, the truth is that death was introduced into this life when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. Before that, there was no death, there was no sickness, there was no pain. But when Adam sinned in the garden, death was introduced to man. That's when it finally started. The spirit of man was broken at that point. 
And because of Him, we're all born dead in our trespasses. Because of that one act, we are all born broken. And the truth is, that can seem kind of harsh. You're like, why would God put what one man did on all the rest of us? How come we're accountable for something that man did? But the truth is, one, you're naive to think that way because have you lived your life sinless? Had you not been placed under the, the, that veal of Adam, you still would have sinned. You still would have had it brought down on yourselves. But the truth is that because through one man sin was introduced into the world, one man death was introduced, then because of that, by one man life can be reintroduced into all of us. If by one man death, for it is in Adam all die, so also in Christ, who is one man, all will be made alive again. And the truth is that all things are in subjection to Christ. And he lives in us. As we read here, that everything is in subjection to God, and finally he'll reign until all enemies are put under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Everything will be in subjection to Christ. And you remember in 1 John 4, 4, it says that you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. That's a verse right there to memorize. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Because Christ was victorious, we are victorious. And when Jesus returns, we will reign with him. Death will be abolished, and we will live forever in eternity with him. Because one man gave his life for us, we all get to live again. So how does this come about? How do we, how do we receive this gift? How do we receive this newness of life? And the Bible says you must be born again. In John 3, 3-7 it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus was one of the best of the best. He was actually represented as one of the best in the nation, all, all the Jewish nation. He was a, a Jewish teacher, we find in verse 10. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. Matter of fact, the Sanhedrin had 70 members, and they were responsible for all religious decisions. And also under the Romans, they were responsible for civil rule. I mean, this was a big guy. He was, he was up there. What I find interesting is he comes at night. He, he appears to him at night... And that's when the story happens is he comes to him at night and he starts talking to Jesus. One, he doesn't really want to be seen with Jesus because that could look bad on him. And the truth is he doesn't really come to him disrespectfully. But when he's asking his question, he's just a little confused. He's like, how can that be? And how many of you know if, if somebody came up to you and said you must be born again without the knowledge that we have of what it means to be born again of the Spirit, we'd be a little confused too. Maybe some of the same questions. I'm not sure how that's going to work. He was respectful. He called him teacher. But still, he didn't grasp who he really was at this time. But we do know that later he understands because he's the one that helps Joseph bury Jesus. When Jesus was buried in 100 pounds of spices, 
Nicodemus was the one who provided that. That's a great amount of wealth that Nicodemus honored Jesus with. But the truth is, the Bible says that we must be born again. Right here it says that unless you want us born of water, and being born of water just refers to the natural birth. When you're born, the, the mother's water breaks and you're born. Born of water just means to be naturally born. And then finally it says, <clears throat> unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, which is born of water, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. To be born again, to be born of the Spirit, is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to have the old you buried and died with Him and be giving a new spirit inside of you, newness of life, that is being born again, to have Jesus' very own spirit deposited inside of you, to be given a brand new life. And this is hard for some people to understand. In 1 Corinthians 2.14 it says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. See, these are some hard things to take in, to, to understand that somebody came and gave everything for you, and in order to, to receive what he's given you, it's just to, to accept the gift. But so many of us want to pay for things ourselves. We want to feel guilty. We want to feel ashamed. Somehow we think we have to atone for our sins, but the truth is you can't. There's no way for you to make it right. The only person who could was Jesus Christ. And he came and he died for you. And that just doesn't make a lot of sense to some people. Like I said, it's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Unless the Spirit of God gets a hold of them. But when they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, a miracle takes place inside them. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, a miracle took place inside of you and that heart of stone was removed and it was replaced by a heart of flesh. You were made brand new as the Spirit of God came to live inside of you. In Galatians 2.20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ and this is Paul speaking, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. To be crucified with Christ is to have your old self killed, the old man that you were, the old person that you were, by faith was crucified with Christ, and by faith you were buried with Christ, and by faith you were raised again with Christ into newness of life. Matter of fact, when we baptize people, that's just a, a picture of, of a good old-fashioned funeral. When you are put under the water, it's as if you were being buried with Christ, but when you come back out of it, you are a brand new creature. It's your representation, it's, your, it's you saying that I, I am one with Christ. By faith, I did these things with Him. You know, when we struggle with sin, it would do us well to remember that the one who struggled with sin is dead and gone. The old man is dead and gone. That When you receive Jesus, that old person that you were, the person that was entwined with that sin is dead. And you've been given a new life that is free from sin. The question is, when I say that, that you're dead, once again, one of those things that can be hard to, to think about. But the truth is that it's by faith that we associate ourselves with the death, burial, and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By faith, the old man died. And by faith, we're given a brand new one. 
Three-year-old Katie was taken to, to a pediatrician because she had the flu. And the doctor gets down and begins to examine her ears. And he says, am I going to find Big Bird in there? And she looks at him and says, no. So he gets down and begins to look at her <coughs> to, uh, <coughs> pardon me, he begins to examine her throat. And he says, will I find the cookie monster in there? She's like, no. So then he gets down and he begins to listen to her heart. And he says, will I find Barney in there? She looks up at him with a straight, innocent face and says, no, Jesus is in my heart. Barney's on my underpants. <laughs> Jesus lives in our heart. We have a brand new spirit inside of us. And it's so easy to become jaded to that fact. I know often, even times in my own life, I have to constantly remind myself of that because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to not understand the love that was expressed because the truth is, God gave his son. Who can comprehend that kind of love? The last scripture I want to look at today is, is our promise in him. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 30 says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all of your uncleanliness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations." This is our promise in Jesus Christ to each and every one of us. This scripture describes what happens to every Christian believer who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our promise that we will be cleansed from all the filthiness. It is our promise that we will have a new spirit within inside of us. We'll have that heart of stone removed and the heart of flesh placed inside of us. It is our promise that we will be blessed. We will be saved for uncleanliness, and then He will call again for a grain and multiply it, and will not bring famine on you. You know, this was an uh, agrarian culture back then. They understood these phrases that were being used, but that means that God is going to take care of you. He's going to make sure that you have what you need. He's going to bring blessing into your life. This is our promise in Jesus Christ. That we'd be made brand new, that we'd be forgiven, and that we'd be blessed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.